the mornings we had to be there before the gutters so that we'd have the farland filled up for them as soon as they came in and they started at six o'clock in the morning and it was just hell for leather heads down and the hair was in a constant silver string going out the back of them and they knew exactly when they caught the hair in the hand what size of hair it was and what tub it but they had no call to look at the tub behind them they knew exactly the pitch on every hair what tub to put it into For the first time I went away, I thought it was terrible. I was very kind of... I just thought to myself, well, it'd be better to be home, you know, at the rise nearly. And it was all a rush. And But then it, it had dancers then, you see. And the evening... This all went away then when the evening came at the, at the weekend. We all looked in. And then the girls were all together. And the younger ones... They were very good. The four men were very good. The younger ones, they gave them a great chance, you know. They could, they could. But we were tired. You see, we, we just wouldn't even get up in the morning because it was the, your arms, your hands, your hand, your hand was sore with the net, using the knife all the time, and they were very tired. But when the weekend came, we did enjoy it, and we soon got used to it. And there was great fun there for that, that great fun in the yard, you know. And fiddle we dee with the herons' fens, fiddle we dee with the herons' fens. We'll mack em for needles and sell em for pens, herons' fens, needles and pens, herons' eyes, puddings and pies, herons' heat, loaf and breed, and all sorts of things. For all the fish that swim in the sea, the heron it is, the fish for me. Sing fa la 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 do fa la 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 do fa la 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 do la Heron are, are what they call pelagic fish like salmon and mackerel and pilchards. Uh, they're migratory fish and they appear at certain times of the year in inshore waters where, where they gather in huge numbers to, to feed and then, and then to spawn. And that's really when the boats would come after them to, to capture them. Now, as well as this sort of movement, which is almost like an offshore, inshore movement, dependent on the time of year, really, um, the water temperature, the weather, the availability of food resources, um, fairly predictable times of, of the year, which, again, was another reason why they were so commercially so important. Now, as well as this sort of offshore, inshore movement onto the spawning grounds, the feeding on the spawning grounds, they also change their position in the sea. It's what they call a diurnal pattern of movement. And in effect, during the day, they would go back to the seabed where they would sleep, they would rest during the day. And then as darkness fell, they would all gather together 
and they would rise up through the water and then they would feed at, 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 almost at the surface of the sea. Um, fishermen used to say you could actually see them, you see this sort of silver glow, or sometimes just before they spawned, the, the bodies of the fish would get a red sort of... So you could almost see this flash in the water, or they would look for um, the oil that they gave off as, as they jostled in this, and you could see this sheen over the water, and that, at night that's the fish up close to the surface of the water feeding. And then as Dave started to break again, they would gather up in their big shoals and they would all sink back down onto the seabed, ready for their rest the next day. So they had this sort of fiendishly simple method of capture, technologically, you know, very sophisticated, called drift nets. And drift nets consisted of, you had a train of nets, which was sometimes up to, it would maybe stretch for three miles, these nets. And they were, they were connected to each other within two ropes. And the top rope would be buoyed, so it would float at the top, and the bottom rope would be weighted so that the nets hung like a curtain in the water. And the mesh was of such a size that the fish could only partially swim through. So they got caught by their gills. Um, so another name for drift nets, so you often hear them called, called gill nets. And the beauty of this system was it allowed loads and loads of boats to fish on the same fishing grounds because it was stationary. You, you had moving fish and stationary nets, so the fish swam into the nets rather like saying trawling, where the net chases the, the fish. So it's, it's an important characteristic of the herring industry, this meeting together. You had a meeting of the fish, and then you had the meeting of the fishing boats uh, from all corners because the boats would go to where the fish were, and the fish were in different parts of the coast on different times of the year. So theoretically, you could actually fish herring all year round, but obviously not in the same spot. So it was very much a hunting industry, depending on a sort of foreknowledge of where the fish would be, uh, an ability to read the signals that told you, then once you got there, when the fish were going to appear, and that's where you put your nets, and then you would catch them. When the heron came into the boats at the pier, and then others alloy brought them up. Alloy or some kind of a bogey, some kind of, there'd be all some kind of, would take the fish. And they were put in the baskets, put in the over the, over the, into the pallet. But at the pallet, there'd be all the packers stood out in the yard where they stayed at the, they called it a, a rouging tub where they kept their fish salt to wreck one, you know. We had all tubs, six or seven tubs. And then we had to carry them to the packer. But they were very, very exact all to watch it what the the fish should be like. But you had to keep going. You put the you put the knife you put the knife into the into the and, and you puke out the gut. That's how you do it. And there was you had a what they called a cog for to put the gut into. They would put it all in there. But then again there's always a smart way. That some people snip them. <laughs> You know, they just cut them. The gut was left in, and they were done very quickly. Which you got very, you got very quick at it. There was never, didn't want much talk on there. There'll be no, no, no much, not much talk on the argot. Every way, if you weren't watching your, you know, and you had a good cement, a good cement pa- uh, path coming down, you know, and you weren't, you weren't standing water. Oh no, it was 
or they, they're either eye. You could see fish when you go to bed. You could see fish coming up, coming up eye up and something coming t- towards me. <laughs> you could, you were watching that with the fish all day. You could see the fish coming towards me. We did it the first year we went to Stronzy. We had great fun. That was my first time away from home, and I thought it was everything was wild. I missed home so much. Everything was all so wild and. We had to work and didn't know the catch they had. We learned on mackerel first. And mackerel is a very strong fish. We put a, got these mackerel first. And you might as well, you might as well get a bit of wood and try to chip it up and take them the mackerel. And that's where they give us the chance for to learn on the mackerel. Well, we'd be, we'd be at the fish, but we'd be so tired from come in. We just wouldn't be fit to move, you know. I'm terrible, terrible tired. But they call the Heron Gutters left Burtonport. They took the train from Burtonport to Derry. And they got the boat in Derry for Scotland. They left Glasgow and they trained up to Aberdeen. And they went from Aberdeen to the Shetlands, a place called Lairwick. When they, they worked there for about two months in a year, and they left there, and sometimes they came to Fraserborough, Peterhead, or the Isle of Man, or Arglass, because these ports, the fishing lasted a bit longer. Uh, the Lairwick fishing finished a bit earlier than these other ports, so they were transferred back to here. Then they left there, and they went to... Uh, Lowstuff and Yarmouth to the east coast of England and there were a lot of curers there you know from I say there could be about 12 or 14 different curers curing fish in these places and that means all over as well so uh, at the end of the season they came home and maybe for the whole season that I'm talking about from 1920. From 1920, if they came home with 30 or 40 pounds for their season, they were rich people. But going back to my time, I left home in 1947 and went to Arglass in the county down and worked with a fish curer there, John Rawsonson's. I wasn't at the Gutton, but I attended the girls that and men that were at the Gutton. And my job was to see that the Farlands was kept full of hern, also to see that the packers had plenty of salt to cure the hern. Now, every gutter had about seven tubs behind her and behind him as well. At one stage, we had seven selections of hern. We had fools, we had large, we had mat fools, we had matties, we had small matties, we had smalls, we had dead smalls, and we had TBs called torn bellies. They all had to be put into different barrels uh, on their own. So uh, the cooper then 
always had the end of a battle for every crew and he marked down their day's work on the end of a battle so he could take it back to where he was staying and put it and lodge it into the book. During that period, uh, from the fishing would start to the end, the days maybe that there wouldn't be fish, we'd be there and what they call filling up had to be done because after three days the hen subsides in the barrel and they have to be topped up a bit, take them up to the level of the barrel and you lid them and you roll them off and you pickle them. The pickle is made out of salt and water. We went out anyway this time too. We went out to the Shetlands, me and my sister went out. And sometimes, you know, it would be very, you get tired and you say, well, this, I, I'd pack it in. We got the bus first to Derry. And then we got the boat in Derry. And we're down then, and we got the, uh, from across on the other side of Glasgow, we got the train to Aberdeen. That was a long route. And right then, that was a dead beach running out to Lerwick, the Shetland. It was all right. It was, I think it's, I think it's what they call it, the, I don't know if the roost or the roosk, but once the boat went out round that corner, everybody got sick. I've seen everybody lying sick in the boat. It was such a rough passage. There was two nurses, and I don't know many workers, isn't it? But they all got sick. And one was attending me a cup, so I said, I got sick, but I wasn't sick. I took the bed. I took the bed. I was, I was going to have no more, and I laid down. Just, I made myself sick. And this old nurse was running about, and she, I, she must have looked around. She caught me smiling. She said, you're not sick. What are you doing in there when you're not helping? Give me a drink, please, I said. <laughs> I'm not well at all. Well, I'm sorry, I thought you were I thought you weren't sick. I see now you're a bit pale, she said. <laughs> all got sick. Rough passage. And the fear that going out there. But, and now we're going to get to go by plane and that's different. <laughs> I like going out the Shetlands, but I wouldn't like going on that boat. You got the boat in Aberdeen. Herring were very important because you got these huge amounts of fish in the one area, all of a, a similar quality and age and, and that sort of thing. And the problem to do with it was, what did you do when you caught them? Because tons and tons of fish. So the commercial herring industry always rested upon cured herring. It was based on a trade in, in cured fish. This was actually pickled fish, but they're, they're, they're curing is, is what, what they call it. Um, used to be the boats would cure, the fishing boats would be equipped to cut to cure as well as catch. And it was really but in the 18th century, for a lot of reasons, a shore-based curing industry grew up. And essentially the boats followed the fish, the curing industry followed the boats. So you would get th- all three factors coming together uh, in the one locality at different times of the year. Now, herring was gutter. There were two important types of workers in the curing industry, the gutters and the coopers. The fish was cured actually in barrels and specially made barrels. And coopers tended to be 
the cures. In fact, a lot of curing firms would have started off, a cooper would gather his assistant coopers and then they would get the gutters, and the gutters were the women. And fiddle with dee with the herons back, fiddle with dee with the herons back. We'll make it a laddie and christen it Jack. Herons back, laddie cat Jack. Herons fins, needles and pins. Herons eyes, puddings and pies. Herons heed, loaf and reed, and all sorts of things. But when I was 16 years, there was nothing else in the future. No future for me, but I go to the gut, where all the girls were going to. And as Bronzy was the first place we to go off to. And I hated leaving home. I hated what was, what was before us. But when we got there, it, was, it wasn't so bad, you know. It wasn't all that. It was, it was quite nice, you know. And there were dancers in it, and there were plenty of sport in it. It wasn't that we were sitting in, you know, you could go up for a good walk in the evening. If, you, if it wasn't, if you were finishing time. But I remember, it was, I always think in the hands. When you'd wake up in the middle of the night, your hands were sore with big pieces, maybe cut the knife. I, the first time I started, we were put on mackerel, to got mackerel. And I could do more. The hands were scraped all. There were two or three dabs. We weren't used to it, you say. We weren't active with the knife. We were cuter the next day. We had our hands right bands. There was nobody to tell us, you say. And we'd wash them then. There was an old woman there. She was she was up to the game more. She would put her hands into the dental. You wash her hands, wasn't dry them. I suppose what was wrong, we didn't piece our hands right. If it was now, you could have gloves on, I think. And the the tying the fingers was a terrible length. Took a terrible length with the with tying up the fitting on the bandages all the finger. Every finger had to be pieced. Some people were quick at it. And the rubber bands came out then. But they seemed to tighten when they got damp. They tightened on the fingers. You could, your fingers get stiff with them. But the fingers always had to be pieced. Uh, not if you were filling up. You could you didn't want for that only for the cutting. And that's the most job I hated with that with the piecing the fingers and the early shout in the morning <laughs> to rap in the doors the cooper would be down knocking the doors up and it was very hard to raise because we were great sleepers and then you were out to work the ports were closed big lot of fish came in the hands would be sore and you'd be tired and but I, when we were young I suppose that's how it was but it was, it was very hard work. It was rough packing. The rough packing, as I called it, was very, very hard. It was piecework. And you had, you had to go as hard as you could. Just go as hard as you could. Just that it was a job and that you were working. That was the only thing. It was all very hard work. But work you forgot about at the weekend. You know, it was all washed away for the weekend because there was so much sport and so much nice people. Them Scottish people were very nice. And even the coopers in the yard would take our hand, take us and wash our hands, and put dental on. <laughs> we were looking after our hands, right? But it was uh, we got over it all. I often wonder it must be the hardest workout and the hardest earned money. Well, first of all, you had to put pieces of calico on your fingers and tie them up with thread and a danger of cutting yourself and salt getting in and sometimes it does happen but this was to put on your fingers to protect you 
from the salt and getting wee jags they had. Every finger had to be pieced. Thumb and all, the lot. And uh, you stood there and you just one dab and you had the, the gut and the gill and all out of the heron, all in one go. As fast as ever they could go. There was some, now this, there's some of them could do over 60 heron to the minute. And how long would they be keeping that up in a day at that time? Well, uh, I suppose they could slacken off by times. They would be maybe dropping down to 58 or something. But there were some of them tamed. I know one man that was tamed, and he'd done 63 heron to the minute. He was going some. And I know the woman that done 60 heron to the minute as well. And she'd be able to keep that up all season. Well, very near, very near. You know, they, they, they were strong and fit. Boys and girls, there was at that job, it had to be, because it was very hard work. And especially in Lostoff and Yarmouth in the winter time. You went there, and the freezing fog, you'd be down on a place called the Deans, in Yarmouth and Lostoff. And there were no, there were only just a shade with uh, iron stanchions and a tin roof over you. It was all opened up. And I, I seen myself there, girls fainting at the farland with cold. And men too. And you were down on them, Dean, it's for half past six in the morning. And whatever time you could finish the evening, it could be any time. There were no, no early timing at all. Your starting time was half six in the morning and low stuff in Yarmouth. But you worked on till whatever time you had the heron for that day cleared up. The foreman cooper was walking round steady and the other coopers, he had, there were about four coopers and a foreman cooper to every yard uh, along with other helpers as well, you know. And uh, there was always two tipping in and you had these kind of wooden shovels shoveling them up tight to the gutters so they wouldn't have to stoop too far to catch the hen, and the hen had to be salted in the farlands, or the girls couldn't grip them. If you put in the hen without salting them, they'd be sliding all over the place, and they'd be shooting out of their hands, they wouldn't be better hold on to them. So the salt had to go on, although uh, the salt was going into the kits and into the barrels, but if direct from the boat into the farland, you had to put the salt in them too, sort of the girl, and keep throwing an odd scoop of salt on. They had scoops, weave, uh, tin plates. Fish were caught throughout the night because that's when the herring were moving around, and then they were gutted and packed the next day. Herring go off very rapidly, so you can't you, you can't let them hang around too much or. It, You've wasted your, your time catching them just to let them rot. So the fish would be landed in the morning and they would be sold on the, on the pier. They were sold by what was called a Dutch auction, so the price started high and then came down rather than, rather than the other way around. So as soon as the price 
dropped to a level that the curers could afford to buy. They, they would buy their supplies of fish and then they would, they would have been taken from the boat side on the pier. They were gutted and packed right on, on, the, on the pier themselves. Now I have, I have a wee picture here which shows the women and the coopers. So you can see there's the barrels of, of ready, of done herring, ready to go off. Here we have the one. This big truck is called a farlin. And essentially when the fish was, the fish was bought, it would be placed in the farlin and the women would work out of this truck. You can see it's just a big wooden sided thing. The sides are about three foot by about nine foot in, in width. The gotten girls worked in crews of three. You had one gotten and two parking. Parking was more time-consuming job than gutting. I worked out that they could gut and pack two tonnes of herring a day. And they just would, they would have worked from the fish hit the farland until it was all put away. It was very, very rare to allow any fish to overnight because it went off. So you were stuck then the next day with having to get rid of your rotting fish that probably wouldn't have pass. They had a system of quality control called, called a crown brand um, originated from they used to have a wee, they used to get a bonus or a bounty it was called on, on the herring for export depending on it being of a certain standard and even when the bounties went this crown brand was maintained it was just like a sort of quality seal and they were very rigorous in, in adhering to the, to the because it would have all been sold on scene the herring went to Russia and Germany and America, most of it was this. This was an export industry. Now, some would have been sold in Ireland, but funny enough, the Irish were funny because they actually preferred the Scottish herring. So you will have herring cured, which was a different type of herring. To the, the different herrings that met in the different locations were they're divided into races. Herring, so it was a bit like someone liking, you know a certain type of beef, like Aberdeen Angus beef, and not liking this beef, you know. And I wouldn't go as far to say there were sort of racial characteristics in your preferences for herring. But it's interesting to know that when it went to America, it tended to be European emigres, that the marketers would that aimed for that market. What did you do at the weekend? There's a place, there, a fish workers institute there, where you could go and visit, where you got your hands dressed, and you would have games and everything there, all sorts of games, and that was great pastime, because they had all games for the boys and everything, and billiards and everything. But uh, the young coopers there, they the past them they sang all day at work, and that was that was a great thing, you know. It made everybody feel happy and. When you were down, when you got something to bring it back. <laughs> Did you sing yourself? Hey, I was a fit sing. I could sing. I wasn't a good singer. I was a good singer every day, but not just now. I used to compose a bit of song. I did compose one with the fishing. Oh, cheer. Now, I wrote this myself. Oh, cheer. I can run a singer, now you'll understand that. Oh, cheer, Connell, how I loved you. From you I couldn't part. Cheer, Connell, how I loved you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, dear Ergal, what a mountain beneath the deep blue sky. 
Dear Aragal, you're beautiful, and I'll love you until I die. While old Mucky stands so glorious, while the golden sun is low. How it brightens up our scenery on the road to Sweet Dunlow. Many fishing ports I travelled while Great Yarmouth I did see. They brought me up to London town, but it didn't appeal to me. It was the harbour lights at Burtonport at the closing of the day. When our fishermen came sailing in and watched them sail away. Oh, cheer, Connell, how I loved you, from you I couldn't part. Cheer, Connell, how I loved you from the bottom of my heart. And with their big prop boots and oil skins, they racked their brawny hands. One gallant man who owned the crew, they'd always give command. They must plough the deep blue ocean, they must fight the angry sea. Oh, Burton Port, I love you, you're my sweet old grandma Fray. Oh, thank God for health and happiness, no wealth thou seek at all. Just my tiny little cottage in the hills of Donegal. Oh, that was lovely. Aye. But Aye. I loved, see, I loved home. I was one that was very sad leaving home. I wouldn't eat three days before I'd leave home. I wouldn't eat three days before I'd leave home. And I couldn't eat before I'd come home. I wasn't one that liked away. I liked, I didn't like away. I went in farms as well in Scotland, you know. But I was so fond of home. I was so fond of Ireland. Now, when all these four, five families left here and went to Scotland, you know, there was nothing for them. There was no future for their children. So one woman said to me, Alation, I think you're the most you should get out of it. And I stood outside and looked at Erigal. I looked at all the beauty around me. And I said, no way. I'll hold on. I loved Ireland. I loved here too much. I loved home too much. I had a good, had a good happiness for home. And as a family, we, we had very, not wretched, but great time there. The, we loved home. Loved home very much. That I could get no place like it. Packing was very, very precise. And you started off, fish would be sort of put in head to tail, but they would almost like spokes on a, on a wheel, so they would radiate out from the centre of the barrel, like petals on a flower opening, and then the next layer would be put in, and then the next layer would be put in, until you get one fish depth layer in the bottom of the barrel, and then you covered that with salt, that was sprinkled with salt, and then the next layer went in, and the salt, and the next layer of salt. So you can imagine these women pack. I mean, these are big barrels. There's, how big would they be? They would come up to certainly breast high or, or, or shoulder high. So you're bending down into a barrel, arranging fish, and then covering them with salt. It was back-breaking work. Once the barrel was full of the freshly gutted and packed fish, it would be lidded and roughly bunged, and it would be left to what they call pine for three or four days. And during that time, there was sort of like a chemical change occurred between the juices that left the fish and the salt, and that was the start of the, of the curing process. And after about a week or so, depending, this is when the cooper skill came in, because they had to know when the fish were ready to be sealed in their barrel. They would take out the bung and what they called the blood pickle would run out. That would run out, be allowed to run out. And because the fish shrank as they pined, they would head it up the barrel, again, with your 
neatly arranged uh, layers of thing. They would make up a pickle, a brine with pickle, and that would be poured until all the air was driven out of the barrel, and then it would be bonged and sealed, and that, that was it. They had to wear oilskins, you know. It was near like a skirt. And it had shoulder straps on them for the women wear. And a bib on it, here. And the men wore aprons and uh, Wellington boots. And that was your rig. If you, you want to keep your head warm, you wore a cap. And the, the women wore uh, scarves on their head. Or a turban or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And can you tell me a wee bit more about the system of getting paid? Well, you didn't get paid to the end of the season. And your total was there at the firm, and you kept a record of every day's work yourself to make sure that you weren't done. And you compared it with his the day you went out, and it's at the end of the season you got your money. You settled up at the end of the season for your money. But to keep you going, you got £3 a week. But this was outside of what you earned by gutting the heron. And would rows ever break out if the two didn't tally? I'm sure they did. Do uh, you have any memories of that? No, I have no memories of that. I never heard of anybody falling out, you know. Right. So it must have been fairly... Fair, accurate. Fairly accurate. Uh, but the, the Cooper always kept it right himself. He had an end of a barrel and he had a big... And he would mark all these things on the end of the barrel, yours, he marked mine, he marked his, and so on. Everybody's was marked there and counted that day. When before, before the packer left, she went with him and she had her barrels for an insta and she knew how many barrels, so she had her tally with her and he had his tally and the two of them corresponded right to the end of the season. Crews were, were sort of self-selected, which I think was very important. Obviously, these women had to work very closely together. The three of them had to be able to do everybody else's job without... And there was no room, I suppose, really, for one person not pulling their weight, obviously dragged the whole crew down. They were paid piece rate. They were paid per barrel. So <clears throat> their money depended on how many barrels they filled. And again, I mean, I've said earlier about the, the herring industry, the herring fisheries, being a very sort of communal sort of thing. And this motif of shared responsibility and shared opportunity seems to come running through it. And again, in Donegal, certainly, there was a tradition of migratory labour in Donegal anyway. The fishermen have been doing this for years because they had to, had to go and follow the herring. And this, I think, was a way that the women got involved in what could be an exceptionally lucrative trade. I mean, I said again, two tonnes of herring. Two tonnes of herring is eight barrels. Now, at the beginning of the century, I think it was a shilling a barrel. You were getting this is between three people anyway. So you might be talking about eight shillings a day between three of you at a time when... Harvest labourers might have got five shillings for a week. Uh, but 
you couldn't you couldn't cure herring all the time, you know. So essentially, what would happen is that the opportunity to go to the herring uh, would arise. The women would have sorted themselves up into crews uh, of three, and then they would contract to a curing firm. They've been bound by a sum of money, which is ours, which is your earnest money. That's your your contract money to prove that that your word has been taken. In 1920s, this would have been five shillings. She would have needed to, what they called, follow the fishing uh, from Larwick, which is up in the Shetland Islands, June, then maybe to Yard Glass, then maybe to Peterhead or Fraserburgh, then on to Hartlepool and North Shields. And that would take you from about April to October. That would be your six months' work. I think, too, they probably would have been tended to be unmarried women. There's a train of thought that would say this was a very convenient way for fishermen's wives and girlfriends and that to to travel around around with them. But the people that I've been spoken to, as soon as they got married, they they formed a base for their husband and their family and they would tend to stay in the one spot. So it tended to be the younger unmarried girls, I think, that would have made up these crews. Perhaps there might have been married women with them. the Shetland curing industry in Lerwick, I mean, its reputation for being a place of um, hard living, I suppose, would be a way. Certainly, they seem to have had great fun, which is, again is interesting because we would look at herring curing, particularly in the gutting and the pang, of being an absolutely repulsive job. But most people speak of it very fondly, the very, very good memories. And they would rather do that, have been doing that, than what we would have thought maybe cleaner work in a, in a hotel or a shop or a factory or something like that. And fiddle with dee with a heron's belly, fiddle with dee with a heron's belly. Makita lassie and christen it Nelly. Heron's belly, lassie cad Nelly. Heron's back, laddie cad Jack. Heron's fins, needles and pins. Heron's eyes, puddings and pies. Heron's heed, loaf and bleed, and all sorts of things. For all the fish that swim in the sea, the heron it is the fish for me. Sing fa la 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 do fa la 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 do fa la 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 do la And what were the digs like? Oh, the digs were good. Oh, the very best. I think it's six shillings we each we paid for the room. And we had a nice, beautiful, nice house. house I know it wasn't easy to bring a smell of fish into our nice place. She had a place out that place outside for the boots, you know. But upon the landlady's hall, they were all very nice, you know. And then mostly all the ones went into one area where all the workers was. These Scotch, these Scotch people are lovely people. They get their head people and the praiseable girls. They were all... A terribly nice team. You just, you just could be very happy with them. You know, no such thing as, as fighting or you know, no bitterness. I remember now there was no church, with no mass there, and you found the Sunday very long. You know, when you didn't, when there were no there was church in the Shetlands, but the priests used to come out from the Shetland and have mass. I mean, the place called the Pap Island, and there was mass over there. And we all went over to Pap Island. There was about 40 or 50 men in And we would, we, well, we'd be very, 
we'd be very unhappy. But we'd go down to the fish workers' rest for to get the hands done. And they had a service on the side. So anyway, I laughed at it, you know. We'd go in, and the nurses came out and said, Oh, come in, come in for this bit of singing the songs. And this was the Protestant songs, those the hymns. We went all, we were young girls, we all were walked in and joined in the singing. <laughs> we were singing. And we had such a laugh, you know. Uh, when we came home, then this woman told me, Mother, we never spoke about it anymore. This woman told me, Mother, oh, she's not even going to Protestant service. <laughs> in this place, well, right in the Shetland. But they were, they were very, they were very nice. They were dancers, they were great things to think, look back on. Even the work was hard as hell. Fiddle with deep with the heron's tail. We'll mack it a ship be a beautiful sail. Heron's tail, ship we a sail. Heron's belly, lassie canelli. Heron's back, laddie cajack. Heron's fins, needles and pins. Heron's eyes, puddings and pies. Heron's heed, loaf and reed, and all sorts of things. For all the fish that swim in the sea, the heron it is the fish for me. Sing fa la 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 do fa la 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 do fa la 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 do la day. 